That's the kettle boiling. It's 4.45 a.m. On June 7th, 2021, I left my apartment very early in the morning and started walking towards the Jerusalem International YMCA, where our entire team, nine radio producers, was going to spend the day recording. It's pretty quiet outside. And why were we going to the YMCA? Well, for starters, it's a place that means a lot to me. It's where I learned how to swim, and come to think of it, also where my father learned how to swim, back in the 50s. It's where I went to summer camp, and where my older brother Oren took me to my very first Bitar Yerushalayim soccer game. Hmm, an early rising chicken? But it's also much more than that. See, in many ways, Jerusalem's a segregated city, full of invisible lines separating groups and peoples. Jerusalem has not yet woken up. Here and there, there's a Tnuva milk truck, like that one over there. The Y, however, is one of the few places in town where those lines blur. Where Muslims, Jews, and Christians, West Jerusalemites, East Jerusalemites, religious, secular, toddlers, teens, adults, the elderly, all come together. The traffic lights are all still flashing orange. So, as you might imagine, in normal times, the Y's a vibrant place. Its hotel rooms are full of tourists, the sports center is buzzing with activity, parents drop off and pick up their kids at the kindergarten, folks eat and drink on the veranda, and enjoy world-class chamber music concerts in the auditorium. Oh, a person. Boker Tov. Boker Tov. Hmm, he didn't seem to be in a chatty mood. But back in June, all that seemed like a memory of a distant past. The Y was just starting to reopen after a year and a half of COVID, which had forced it to close many of its programs and departments and lay off much of its staff. And as if that wasn't enough, we had all just experienced yet another, particularly unsettling cycle of regional violence. The sun is just coming up, and I am walking on King David Street, usually a bustling street now completely empty. What many of us, I think, miss most during COVID was a sense of community. So we decided to go to a place which is all about community. In fact, it's even called a community center. But what does a community trying to regroup feel like? What does it sound like? That's what we wanted to find out. Okay, here we are at the Y. When I arrive, I head straight to the sports center. The center itself is still closed, but that doesn't seem to matter to a small group of people patiently waiting outside for the doors to open. We call ourselves the 6 a.m. group. You call yourself the 6 a.m. group? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Despite their name, it's still a bit early. What time is it? It's uh, 5.40. A.m. And do you guys come every day at 5.40 a.m.? Pretty much, much, yeah. 5.40, we're here. But we're just waiting, right? It's not 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 open. It's no. They're waiting for Majid, the lifeguard. Because they're not allowed to let us into the pool without a lifeguard. So let me ask you something. Since you know that the sports center only starts at 6, how come you guys come 20 minutes early just to sit outside? Because I wake up without my clock and I just... Get out of bed and move. Wow, you must be in good shape. No. (laughs) That's why I'm here. Because I'm not. (laughs) 
Are there people from all ages in this early bird group, or is it? Yes, yeah, yes but I'm one of the youngest, let's say, and, and, and I'm 63. Are you guys friends? Yeah. Of course. We are quite a regular group. Here comes a lifeguard. Just like that, chit-chat time is over. I follow them down to the gorgeous new swimming pool. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven swimmers. And try, with partial success, to talk to folks as they do their laps. Tell me, what do you have on your nose? Uh, what do you have on your nose? I don't hear. Majid, the lifeguard, takes me aside and tells me that his main concern is heart attacks. Looking around, I can understand why. What's your name? Yossi. Joseph. And uh, are you retired? Yeah, sure. I'm old 84. You're 84 years old? 84, yeah. yeah. So are you enjoying your swim this morning? Is it, a, is it a good swim? This is the life. Baruch Hashem. Yossi clearly just wants to go on swimming. But I bombard him with questions. I learned, for example, that he's one of seven children and that his dad came to Palestine from Yemen in the 1920s. Tell me, was your father also uh, so active when he was an old man? No. My father is dead in the Uneirag in the morning. Your father was killed in 48? In the war. How old were you? Nine. With that, I guess, Yossi feels he's done his part. He turns around, swims away, and leaves me to my early morning snark. Speed is not of the essence at 6 a.m. As soon as I say that, I immediately feel bad. A few minutes later, David, another 6 a.m.er, gets out of the pool. He lives around the corner from the Y, at the Pontifical Biblical Institute. And you're a Jesuit priest. I was when I last looked. Yes, I'm a Jesuit priest. (laughs) Given that... I decide it's a good idea to confess my earlier irreverence. I see that some of the people aren't really swimming, to be honest. They're more like walking in the water. Don't be judgmental. (laughs) Everyone does what they can. (laughs) What did I expect? He's a priest. We are the 6 a.m. group. We meet together every morning, six days a week. And this has been going on for years. (laughs) And we only meet here, right? It's not like we socialize or... So is it just like high-high, or, or is it more than that? It's high-high, and then we complain when there are things to complain about, about the YMCA, about the country, about the world. I mean, we meet here every morning, but it doesn't go beyond that. Do you have a WhatsApp group? No, 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 no. And just to make sure I understand the limits of the pool camaraderie, David tells me about a party he recently attended at the Vatican ambassador's home. And suddenly I see a man who I know from here. And I did not realize that he, in fact, is the deputy consul of Belgium and his wife is the consul. And they come here and swim. So when they approached the Vatican ambassador without even thinking, I said, I know you. And he looked at me and he said, I don't know you. And I said, you should. I see you every morning without your clothes on. (laughs) And his wife was like very embarrassed and so was he and so was I because I suddenly realized what I said (laughs) what gets you out of bed at 5.30 in the morning every day to come here and swim okay I wake up at 4.30 because I pray and then this is a continuation of my prayer really Mm, yeah I pray while I'm swimming any insights for the beginning of the day from your prayer trust in God 
because he will give you the courage you need. And there you have it. It's not yet 6.30 a.m., but I've already met a Jewish retiree whose father was killed in the War of Independence, a Muslim lifeguard worried about cardiac arrests, and a Catholic priest who commits diplomatic faux pas. Welcome to A Day at the Y. Hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and this is the season opener of Israel Story, brought to you by Tablet Magazine. We're delighted to be back, and especially thrilled to announce our new partnership with the Jerusalem Foundation. Check out all their wonderful activity and projects at jerusalemfoundation.org. In our episode today, all recorded during one day at one location, we'll go back and forth between the gym, the kindergarten, the front desk, the events team, the CEO's office. We'll meet Bob the Builder, a fake Argentinian bride, a psychoanalytically inclined bellboy, a two-timing husband, and many, many others. Now, the Jerusalem International YMCA, that's the Young Men's Christian Association, is most definitely not your average YMCA. It's a local icon. For decades, it was one of Jerusalem's tallest buildings. And with its elegant sandstone arches, domes, and famous bell tower, the Y is one of the most recognizable, majestic, and seemingly immortal landmarks in town. It was designed in the 20s and 30s by Arthur Loomis Harmon. That's Harmon with an O, by the way. No relation. At the same time, Harmon's firm, Shreve, Lamb & Harmon, was busy designing another project, the Empire State Building in New York City. Standing in front of the entrance to the YMCA building, which is really one of the most remarkable buildings, I think, in the Middle East. That's another Arthur, Arthur Specter, who's the YMCA's current architect, and has been for the last 30-odd years. They searched long and far to find another author to continue the building. When I meet him in front of the entrance, Arthur explains to me that the idea was to create a community center in the true sense of the word. A center for the community. A place where locals of all religions would come together in... Body, spirit, and mind. There was a fancy concert hall. Really a beautiful auditorium. That was the spirit. The central part is the mind because they had classes and other things taking place here. And the real jewel, the body was represented by Jerusalem's very first indoor swimming pool and wood floor gymnasium. But from the start, the Jerusalem YMCA was more than just a community center. It was a utopian oasis, a... Center for the three monotheistic religions, of course. And uh, you feel it everywhere you go in this building. It was dedicated in April 1933 with the following words. Here is a place whose atmosphere is peace, where political and religious jealousies can be forgotten, and international unity be fostered and developed. The why was, as many pointed out at the time, a sermon in stone. Nearly 90 years later, that sentiment seems to hold true. I really love this place. It's amazing. There's a shared reality. It's a miracle. It's a unicorn. It's a little of everything. A microcosm of Jerusalem. It's one of the most peaceful places in Jerusalem. Trust me. (laughs) There's Christians, there's Jews, there's Arabs. And uh, we all get along. It's a hope for a better future for everyone. 
And nowhere, of course, is that hope for a better future more palpable, more present, than in the Arab-Jewish Gan, the kindergarten, where Zev Levi spent the morning. It's 9.30 a.m. and we're walking down a narrow hallway with a shiny green linoleum floor. The walls are covered with murals of Winnie the Pooh, framed works of finger-paint flowers, and printed notifications to parents, reminding them to please check their kids for lice. On either side of the corridor, behind waist-high gates, are small preschool classrooms. Some are in the middle of story time, others are playing games, and one has just started a music lesson. At the end of that hallway, and through a heavy glass door, is a large balcony that's been converted into a child's wonderland. We step out. There are jungle gyms, brightly coloured hopscotch squares, and an array of plastic vehicles to ride. As a radio producer and the father of a four-year-old and a two-year-old, I was pretty excited when I was assigned to cover the YMCA's kindergarten. After all, I know how insightful kindergartners can be. The one-liners I hear at home are a mix of creative, ridiculous, and deeply profound. Like, just before Passover, my son turned to me and said, Why is Moses confused? If you see a burning bush, put the fire out. Or recently, my two-year-old asked for a tissue by pointing to her face and shouting, Nose poo! Nose poo. I feel that these phrasings, these thoughts, always teach me something new. I get to see the world from a different perspective. My kid's perspective. Now, my children live in a modern Orthodox home. They go to modern Orthodox kindergartens, and almost everyone they know is modern Orthodox. That's their world. So, it's not all that surprising that last week I overheard my son saying, God? God, I'm here. Do you need me? You want me to wear my pajamas to school today? The YMCA kindergarten, on the other hand, is home to kids from many different backgrounds. There are Jews and Muslims and Christians. There are Israelis and Palestinians and internationals. Many languages, many traditions. So I couldn't wait to see what precious, shareable quotes I'd hear, what mind-broadening perspectives I'd gain. With great anticipation, I start making small talk. What's your favorite song? Right. Very sweet, but not quite what I'm looking for. On to kid number two. Hi. What's your name? I call Bob the Builder. Your name is Bob the Builder? Yeah. I smile. Bob the Builder? I've got this. My son loves his Bob the Builder beanie so much that he even wants to wear it in the sweltering Jerusalem summer. I ask, what's your favorite thing about Bob the Builder? The girl for Bob the Builder is Russia. The girl for Bob the Builder is Russia. Sorry? The girl for Bob the Builder is Russia. The girl? Yeah. I'm stumped. Do you like Russia, the girl? Yeah. That's nice. I, of course, know Wendy, Mrs. Barbara Bentley, Molly, even Mrs. Faye Potts. 
but Russia? That doesn't seem right. So, very discreetly, and while kid number two isn't paying attention, I scroll through the Wikipedia page that lists every single character that has appeared in every single season of Bob the Builder. Russia is nowhere to be found. Turns out that Rasha, not Russia, is the name of that kid's mum. In a fantasy where he's the hero, who's the love interest co-star? His mother. I wonder whether I feature in my kids' playtime fantasies. Anyway, next up, I stand in the middle of the playground and hold out my microphone. I figure the type of kid with something to say will approach me. And, lo and behold, ten seconds later, one does. He calls me an orange rabbit, which I assume is a jab at my ginger hair. Despite my deep-seated playground instincts telling me to retaliate, I remind myself that I am 34 and can take the high ground. I decide to ask him what rabbits eat. Masha Fanochel. They don't have couscous. Can couscous? Rabbits promptly forgotten, he tells me what he likes to eat. Couscous and hummus, in case you were wondering. Then he says, I like to eat pee-pee. <sighs> I know this mood all too well. The increasingly wild energy, the potty mouth. It's just a matter of time. And before I can finish the thought, he starts pinching my arm. I ask if he wants to hurt me. Yes, he says. I want to make you cry. Now, I'm a grown man. I'm six foot six with a full beard and a full frame. And I'm being bullied by a three-year-old. I slowly start to retreat. He follows me. Ooh, lotoda. Lotoda. Currently punching me in the balls. Yeah. Some people go out in search of intercultural wisdom and return all enlightened. And some, well, just get punched in the balls. He took off his pants! At the end of the day, I guess, kids are kids are kids. On their way up to the kindergarten, Bob the Builder, the kid who likes to punch Zev in the balls, and all their other friends have to pass through the YMCA lobby. And it's there that they always see the same guy. All the kids come in the morning, where is Fadi, where is Fadi? And I know all the names of the kids in the preschool. Fadi, the security guard. Like basically everyone else who walks into the building, Yoshi Fields and Adina Karpuch stop to chat with him. Fadi Abu Rakba is 25. He has gelled black hair that's pulled into a neat man bun, and he wears a black uniform with a name tag. Fadi's much more than just a guard. See, in every possible way, Fadi is a one-man YMCA PR machine. He makes sure colleagues get enough airtime. Khaled, he knows everything about the building. Get on! Yeah, yeah, get on. Yeah, yeah. And when he finds out we haven't yet visited some of the Y's hidden gems, he literally can't stand still. You went to the auditorium? You don't went inside? Oh, it's amazing. You went to the chapel? No, take us, <gasps> take us on tour. He pulls out his master keychain, somewhat surprisingly just leaves his post and leads us out the main entrance and down a colonnade. 
He opens a large wooden door, letting us into the performance hall. Wow, it really is amazing. Can you describe the place? Because people won't be able to see. What? Because it's radio. People won't be able to see. What I see? Yeah. Yeah. What I see? Uh-huh. I see the piano. <laughs> <laughs> the auditorium has a high dome ceiling with a massive iron chandelier hanging down from the top. There are rows of empty seats with burgundy velvet cushions and an old grand piano on the stage. Everything seems a bit dusty. After all, nobody has performed here since the beginning of the pandemic. But with a huge grin spreading on his face, Fadi's clearly imagining a different time. Sometimes we make concerts for the kids. I bring my son and Christmas. It's very nice here. Full. More than 600 people here. Full. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fadi's son, Avi, is four. He shows us a picture of him on his phone. That's your son? Yeah, this is my son. In suspenders and a bow tie. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. It's really sweet. Also in the picture is Fadi's wife, Christine. They're childhood sweethearts and grew up together in the Christian Quarter, where they still live today. I ask him about life in the old city, but Fadi seems eager to move along. So next up on our impromptu tour, the old swimming pool. The secret swimming pool? No one uses it anymore. He opens a door into a 90-year-old spiral staircase. We go down? Be careful. I go into the dark. It feels medieval. I turn on my cell phone flashlight, go down and down, and ultimately end up in the basement, a maze of dark corridors in front of me. Fortunately, Fadi knows exactly where to go. Straight, right, left. And from here we can go inside and up, and we can go Outside, would you like to go from here? With that kind of confidence, all we can do is follow. We pass walls full of graffiti and enter an abandoned locker room filled with piles of dirty towels and a faint smell of chlorine. Okay, that way, that way. Yeah? Yeah. Finally, we reach a locked metal door. No problem, I think, as I look at Fadi's janitor keychain. There are dozens of keys on that chain, but not, it seems, the one we need. Unfazed, Fadi rises to the occasion. We have another way. (laughs) A few twists and turns later. Whoa. (laughs) We make it. Hello. There's a basketball in the bottom of the empty pool. The place feels a bit like a time capsule, a throwback to an era when swimming pools were rare and luxurious. We stand around talking. It seems that our journey into the recesses of the Y has opened up a door into Fadi's personal life, too. Two weeks ago, he shares, his wife gave birth. Actually, she have twins, and one of the twins... Oh, no, Yeah. Pamela, one of the twins, had died. And we have Pamela and Chloe, and now we don't have Pamela. She went up. Holding back tears, he tells us that Pamela had looked like him. She have like me. It's neck, it's tall, and uh, she looks like that because she's tall also. As we begin to walk back above ground, Fadi moves into Hebrew. I took her and buried her, he says. It was really hard, and I didn't want my wife to know where she was. People ask my son, what's your new sister's name? He says, Pamela. Sometimes he forgets. He got used to the idea that he was going to have Pamela and Chloe. I told him that in the end we found out that we only have one, and it's Chloe. It was so hard, but it's okay. Angel in the sky. 
an angel in the sky. Fadi says he needs to get back to his post. Today is his first day back at work since the birth. After his shift, he'll go straight to the hospital, where Chloe is still under medical observation. But before we say goodbye, Fadi pulls out his phone and shows us some more pictures. Handmade embroidery of Pamela and Chloe's names. Matching rooms, matching clothes, and a stroller for twins. Half of which will forever remain unused. With that, we leave Fadi at his post and walk away to find other interviewees. But when I look back, there he is, smiling again, welcoming two hotel guests with his infectious energy. S'il vous plaît, monsieur. Around lunchtime, magical melodies drew us towards the wise music room. Sonia Eppelbaum stepped in. A bunch of young musicians are preparing for their lessons with teachers Bella and Robert. The couple lead the Wise Youth Orchestra and also privately teach talented kids from all around Jerusalem. When we arrive, Robert, white hair, pot belly, button-down shirt, is just sitting down at the piano to accompany Ivan, one of their star students. So it's second movement of the Prokofiev, second concerto. Ivan was the first violinist from East Jerusalem to win a scholarship from the American Israel Cultural Foundation. He's 17, and he's very, very shy. That's why I'm going to let him introduce himself to you the same way he introduced himself to me, with his violin. Ivan is one of Robert and Bella's oldest students. Most of the others are much younger. I'm 11 and he's 7. No, I'm 8. I mean 8. And despite their young age, they're quite precocious, talking about music as if it's a fantasy. It's like reading an adventure story, but you don't feel like you're reading. You're like in the book. And there really is something otherworldly about the tender way with which Robert and Bella accompany the kids through their waltzes and concertos and rondos. It's as if, all of a sudden, the music room becomes a little world of endless possibilities, where a kid, no matter how small or tall or gawky or shy, can transform into a respected up-and-coming maestro on his or her way to a concert hall near you. That is, of course, as long as they continue to practice. Or at least, that's what Bella and Robert keep on telling them, over and over again. Because all of them are very talented. It's just different how much they practicing, uh, yes. And uh, because of this responsibility, it's pushed them a little bit to practice. If you hear someone who is not a real musician, you hear it's okay. Once you feel something in his playing, he's a real musician. Ivan Robert told me when nobody was listening, is a real musician. And since it's not so polite to talk during a real musician's performance, I'll shut up now and let Ivan play us out. We'll be right back. And now, back to our episode. If you're just joining us, we're spending a day at the Jerusalem International YMCA, capturing a snapshot of a diverse community trying to bounce back from both COVID and a mini-war. 
After lunch I step outside into the wise leafy garden. People are having picnics, doing handstands, pushing baby carriages. It's all pretty civilized. But that wasn't always the case. The garden was built on what used to be Jerusalem's soccer stadium. Jerusalem's only soccer stadium. Home to both Betar and Hapoel Yerushalayim. Now, you might get the wrong impression when you hear the word stadium. It was more like a neighborhood pitch, with some simple stands. Nevertheless, people would go wild. Fans would climb on trees or sit on barbed wire just to get a glimpse of the players. Itzadion Imka, as it was known, was the setting of some of the most dramatic and memorable soccer moments in Israeli history. Today, all that's pretty hard to imagine. We walk around and strike up random conversations. In one corner of the garden, a bunch of Palestinian high school students in caps and gowns are taking graduation photos. Oh, Abdurrahman Aisa, 18 years old. Yusuf, I'm 18 two days ago. And uh, we came here today to uh, take some pictures for the memories of our life, being a senior. Nearby, sitting on a bench, is a man with an open Talmud. So I'm learning what's called Daf Yomi. And the idea of the Daf Yomi project is every day you learn a single Daf, single page of the Talmud. It's a good way to continue and learn, even that I'm not currently at the yeshiva. Some of the conversations are surprisingly sweet. One minute. Give me your hand. My hand. <gasps> Wow! For you. Thank you so much. These are candies. Yes, yes. Oh, wow. Yes. This is great. I'm here all day, so I will definitely be eating them. You're very kind. (laughs) I'm going to have one of the candies he gave me. (laughs) Wow. It's going to get me through the day. And others, weirdly deep. What was the first thing you remember wanting to, like, be when you were big? Or a soccer player or a musician. Uh, What do you do now? I'm a musician and I play soccer every Tuesday. If you could change uh, one thing about the world, what would it be? One thing about the world? I wish there was less gravity. Physical things, you know, falling down? Less falling down. Less gravity. That could be cool. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. At some point, a radiant bride in a flowing wedding dress shows up. I say, Mazal Tov. Mazal Tov. No, no, lo Mazal Tov. <laughs> lo. <laughs> Turns out, it's a fashion shoot. I thought you were uh, <laughs> a bride, but, but you're yeah, not? I'm not. I'm not. I'm just shooting some uh, pictures. So what does it feel like to wear a uh, wedding dress without, <laughs> without being a bride? I think this is the, the most, uh, like, near... <laughs> I've been to get married. <laughs> so, I really like it. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, it fits me. <laughs> Does it make you want to get married? I don't know yet. I'm young. <laughs> I'm not getting married. Then, underneath one of the trees, I spot a man picking a fruit I've never seen before. Round, dark, larger than a cherry, smaller than a plum. I ask him what it is. Alicha. Alicha. basar which he makes into a sweet and sour sauce for meat. Lev, that's Mr. Alicha's name, gives me one to try. As we munch on our Alicha's, he tells me he's waiting for his granddaughter Nola to finish her swim class. He then proceeds, basically unprompted, 
to lay out his entire biography. Lev and his wife Sarah, I learn, came to Israel in 1990, from Russia. When I inquire where exactly in Russia, he simply says, We are the Bedouins of the USSR. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I soon find out. See, Lev, well, he's apparently the ultimate nomad. Here's a partial list. He was born in Volin, eastern Poland. His father was killed in the Battle of Stalingrad, and he and his mom started moving around. He lived in Azerbaijan, the Caucasus, Siberia, Moscow, Karakala, and on, and on. Drogobych and on. Ushgara. Each city opening up a new story in the chapter book of his life. As Lev lists all the Soviet cities he'd ever lived in, I notice another man listening in on the Russian geography lesson. Excuse myself and go over to say hi. Hi, can I ask you a couple of questions? Your name. What's your name? Philip. Philip. Uh, and what brings you to the Y today? To the physio. To the physiotherapy. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. How's how's it going? First time. And uh, and how old are you, Philip? I'm seventy plus, seventy six. Seventy six. Mm. No, let's let's be correct. Seventy seven and a half. Seventy seven and a half. Yes. <laughs> I just love people who at some point in life start counting half-birthdays once again. So I sit down beside him. Where are you from originally? Ghana, West Africa. Oh, wow. Long way. (laughs) And what brought you to Israel? He tells me that he came to Israel in 1964 to study medicine, but he never practiced as a physician. I got a good job with Pfizer. Oh, really? So instead of doing an internship, I went to make money. (laughs) <laughs> and what did your parents think when you said that you wanted to go to Israel? They were so thrilled because Israel, first of all, they're staunch uh, Christians. Actually, my father was a priest. In Israel, Philip met and married a Hungarian Jew, the daughter of Holocaust survivors. He even converted to Judaism. What did your father think about that? Well, I was afraid to tell him, so I, I didn't tell him until I had I finished the conversion. And when I told him, he said, listen... Son, I, I did not think that you would change your religion. But if I, I trust your common sense and your integrity, if you change your religion and become Jew, be a good Jew. Since then, oh, he was praying for Israel all the time. And you yourself are religious? I try to be. <laughs> I try to be. I ask Philip whether he misses Ghana. His immediate answer? I don't miss it. But a few seconds later, he adds... Yeah, Ghana is a good place. I mean, I met people who have been to Ghana, and they said, Ghanaians are the best Africans in the world. Do you think that's true? I think so, yeah, because they are very friendly, they are warm, and they live good life. <laughs> okay, pleased to meet you. Where is the studio? The sports center? Yeah. It's down down those steps over there. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. As I hope you can hear in the tape, there's a sense of serenity in the garden, as if it's out of time and out of place. And in many ways, 
That's true of the Y as a whole. The reality outside, it stays at the gate of the YMCA. It doesn't come in. That's Alexandra, the director of the kindergarten. People don't talk politics. They don't talk about what divides them. They talk about what brings them together. But sometimes that reality outside does creep in, especially when everyone's still recovering from, slash trying to make sense of, the latest bout of regional violence. Throughout the day, that's the elephant in the room. And it's to discuss that elephant that Dana Harmon and Marie Ruder went straight to the top. We meet Rana Fahoum, the CEO of the Y, in her second floor office in the early afternoon. She's wearing a beautiful dark blue flowery summer dress and ballet-style slippers. Elegant. Marie and I, on the other hand, have come straight from doing interviews in the gym, where we tried our best to fit in, so we're sweaty and messy, sporting spandex and sneakers. Rana's assistant, Avia, gives us one look and offers up cold water in plastic cups. We begin, inevitably, by waxing poetic about how amazing the gym is and how fabulous the facilities are. It's amazing. And from there we segue into a chat about how magical this whole bubble of coexistence at the Y really is. We always said we're a bubble, we're a bubble. Bubble. That's Rana's word. Coexistence? Very peaceful. That's ours. We are curious towards each other. We find each other fascinating. We want to know about each other. You know, you see the line of Jewish kids with kippot wanting to take a photo with Santa Claus. And then you say, you know, the city has some hope. Diversity, yes. Mutual curiosity, check. Kids learning about each other's religions and celebrations, excellent. But Rana pushes back when it comes to us describing all this, as inspiring as it may be, as coexistence. It's not, she says, a word she feels right about. I personally do not use the word coexist because I genuinely believe that we cannot speak of coexistence when the gap between Palestinians and Israelis is as big as it is today. But we do speak of shared living and we aspire to have equal footage. Gaps, shared living, equal footing. These aren't just words Rana is throwing out there. It seems she's been thinking about these terms her whole life, and also about how they intersect with questions of identity and education, questions about this city, Jerusalem, and questions in general about life in Israel. Rana's 47. She was born in Nazareth, one of four girls in her family, and raced through high school. In 1991, when she was just 16, she moved to Jerusalem to study at the Hebrew University. She soon decided to stick with her adopted city, marrying a Jerusalemite and starting a family here. She founded and led an innovative junior high school for Arab girls in Abu Tor, and after that joined the Israeli Ministry of Education. Two years ago, she was chosen to lead the Jerusalem YMCA, becoming its first ever female CEO. I'm a feminist, (laughs) radical feminist. I'm Muslim. A Palestinian Muslim. She's a feminist, and a woman, and a Palestinian, and a Muslim, and an Israeli citizen. Here, though, she is, above all, the boss. And sometimes that's misleading. You know, it could be that I'm the CEO, but once we step out of the why, it's obvious where the power lies. But at least at the why, we don't have these power relations that outside the why and the society has. 
But while the YMCA might see itself and be seen as a bubble where power relations can and are turned on their head, no one here is really immune to the dynamics outside, nor to the mistrust, stress, and anger those dynamics can bring in their wake. One of the things that we always said, and the Y was very uh, proud of, is that we always said we're a bubble, we're a bubble. And the thing is that now we have to start thinking outwards. How do we bring the spirit that goes on in the Y into the city. When we met, it had barely been a month since the end of the latest spate of violence between Israel and the Palestinians, which saw Hamas in Gaza aiming rockets at Tel Aviv and Israel aggressively bombing Gaza. In addition, this time around, the violence within Israel, between Jewish and Arab populations in mixed cities, was frightening and depressing. As Rana puts it, in great understatement, Things are far from being dandy. No, not all is dandy. I am afraid for my kids. I feel threatened. Rana has three kids. The other day, she told us, her eldest, who's 15, asked her to pick him up a few blocks away from King David Street, where the Y is, and drive him to the Y for his orchestra practice with Bella and Robert, whom we met earlier. And I was like, uh, walk, it's seven minutes walk. You can walk. And she says, uh, mom... Um, a Palestinian 15 years old kid who looks 18, I'm pretty tall, I'm wearing black trousers and a black hoodie, and I'm holding a black big box, which is his violin. Are you sure you want me to come to you? I was like, no, 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 stay where you are, I'm coming to pick you up. Someday, Rana says, The YMCA's way will be copied and taught and become the way things are done outside these walls and gardens and Zumba studios. That's possible. And once it's done differently outside, well, then inside here, Rana might even give that word coexistence a nod. That too, she says, and she smiles, is possible. Because I'm optimistic, I hope that... In a few years down the road, we would be able to use the word coexistence without pushing back on it and to feel comfortable with it. Uh, And to say, yes, we are coexisting. Amen. 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 Inshallah. Inshallah. (laughs) Uri Glicksberg, the wise director of culture and events, works just down the stairs from Rana's office. Skylar Inman dropped in to say hi. Hi, Uri. Uri is sitting at his desk, wearing a black Modest Yahoo t-shirt. Hey. Hello. How are you? Good, how are you? He began working at the Y a few months before COVID hit. For nearly two decades prior to that, Uri had been organizing some of Israel's biggest music festivals. I point to his shirt, and he smiles. Yeah, another one of his productions. Amongst others. Between Uri's hippie sideburns, tiny stud earring, and the rasta-colored lettering on his shirt, there's a noticeably chill vibe about him. But, as I discover after less than a minute of chit-chatting, Uri's stressed out. It's not because of the unexpected war that had just ended. There was tension. I don't really know how to describe it, but it was yeah, there was something in the air. It's not even the fact that Uri had only just returned to the Y after sitting at home for a year during COVID. In the whole uh, pandemic thing, so a lot of changes have been done here and a lot of staff left. It's been weird. No, see, what's got Uri all frazzled is something much smaller and less existential than either of those things. It is, wait for it, summer camp. Summer camp. 
When Uri returned to work last month, Rana gave him an ultimatum. Given the limited staff, either find someone to organize the YMCA's summer camp or do it yourself. Now, it's not quite culture and it's not quite an event, but... After much consideration and some reservations, I said, okay. You know, an event is an event is an event, whether it's a Christmas concert in the auditorium at the Y or if it's the Giro d'Italia. But summer camp? It's not an event. It's not an event and I can't see it as an event. I'm trying. Believe me, I'm trying to look at it as a project. But, you know, it's having a hundred kids running around all day with teenagers looking over them and food coming in and, and, and activities and teachers and then swimming and, you know, it's way out of my element. Ironically, wanting to be way out of his element was one of the things that brought him to the Y in the first place. Uri grew up in a Jewish neighborhood in Jerusalem and always went to Jewish schools. As such, and like many other Jewish Jerusalemites, he never really engaged with the holidays of his Muslim and Christian neighbors. When he took his job at the Y, he was excited not only to be participating in events for holidays like Eid al-Fitr and Easter, but to be planning them himself. So Christmas at the Y is a very, very big deal. And it was my first event here. Uri was given the daunting task of buying the Christmas tree. Was yeah. that the first Christmas tree you ever selected? Yeah. Because I'm not Jewish, and if someone were like, we're planning a Hanukkah event, you're in charge of getting the menorah, I would feel, like, panicked. Did you feel like you had to do research on, like, how to choose a good Christmas yeah. tree? Yeah, And luckily for me, the research that I've done, I've managed to find out only two companies, so, you know, there's not much of a choice. <laughs> when the day finally arrived for the Christmas tree lighting ceremony, Uri was busy backstage. At some point, he stepped out to peek at the crowd, an old tradition he picked up from his music festival days. I walk outside and the place is packed. The lights were off, total darkness, and everybody's just waiting. There wasn't no music, there was like, there was nothing. And as someone who did a lot of events, going out there and seeing 3,000 people standing quietly in the dark and just waiting, Nobody was shouting, let's go, let's go. It was just, it was beautiful. And then everybody's counting down from 10. 10, 10, 9, This is audio from Uri's first Christmas tree lighting in 2019. He flips the switch, everything, all the lights of the building and the tree and the crowd is like, whoa. Those moments the woes, the collective celebrations, the sense of community. That's what Uri missed during his long months at home. That's what he can't wait to get back to. And the only thing standing between him and that? Frickin' summer camp. Now, I got back three weeks ago, right? And I got other stuff. I want to do Eid al-Adcha. I want to do uh, Rosh Hashanah. I have Christmas to start working around. I try to suggest that maybe... Just maybe, he might be able to get as excited about pulling off a successful summer camp. You don't feel like when you look at, out at the sea of dancing 10-year-olds, you'll feel the same feeling? No, as definitely not. And I don't want to be looking at them dancing. He's clearly not there yet. But, well, maybe one day. And our children will play.
A few weeks ago, about two months after our day at the Y, we called Uri to hear how things went with the summer camp. Turns out it was totally fine. But Uri, he never organized it. At the end of July, he told us, he left his position as the culture and events director at the Y and returned to his real passion, producing music concerts. The man who stepped into his shoes, at least insofar as organizing the summer camp, was Khalid. During our day at the Y, Adina Karpuch and Yoshi Fields paid him a visit. Khalid Rishak is 55. He's tall, bald, or if we want to be generous, balding, has bushy eyebrows and an easy smile. In many ways, he's a personification of the Y. See, Khalid's been working here since 1982, when, at 16, he started off as a janitor. In the years since, he's worked his way up to the maintenance staff, the front desk, and the hotel. These days, he's officially part of both the events and the youth departments, but is, as we find out, sort of a jack-of-all-trades. We barely get through pleasantries when Khaled's phone starts ringing. He picks up, and his face immediately becomes serious. Someone, he's informed, has been injured and is in need of help. In a flash, he's running down the hall, waving for us to follow him. We reach one of the side entrances to the Y, where a woman has fallen down the stairs. She's clearly in pain, crouched on the floor, bent over and grasping her foot. Her worried daughter is at her side. Khaled, no nonsense, kneels down beside her. As for us, we've literally just met him and don't know the woman, or for that matter, first aid. So, feeling incredibly awkward and completely useless with our recording gear and outstretched microphones, we stay at the top of the steps. Not knowing what else to do, Yoshi starts providing some very helpful color commentary. So, it looks like a woman fell down the steps here and hurt her ankle. She's bleeding a bit. Khaled is checking on her and feeling her ankle and seeing... I'm guessing if it's broken or if it's sprained. From our vantage point, Khaled seems to be a pro. A few minutes later, the woman slowly stands up. Khaled says his eyes are no x-ray. Yeah, they no x-ray. So it's not a bad idea to go to the hospital and get it checked out. She thanks him and hobbles away, supported by her daughter. Khaled smiles warmly and starts walking back to his office. Back inside, he catches his breath. We're full of questions and awe, but he's completely calm. Turns out he's a trained paramedic and volunteers with Hetzala, an emergency response organization. Hetzala has an army of volunteers across the country. Jews, Muslims, Christians, anyone really, who rush, often on motorcycles, to be first responders at the scene of various different emergencies. That, I realized, explains the oversized black and orange pager holstered in his belt, It pings every few minutes, interrupting us and alerting him to nearby calls. It's only now that we notice the motorcycle helmet and jacket at the entrance to his office, ready to be swooped up just as soon as he's called into action. And how often do you respond? Come out every day. Almost every day, he says. And then you just drop whatever you're doing and run there? Yes, whatever you think. It's chayadam. Of course, he continues. There's nothing more important than human life. Sometimes he gets two phone calls at once and, well, needs to delegate, even to a podcast producer he's just met. Hi. Um, 
This is Khaled's friend. He'll, he'll uh, 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 call you back soon. Okay. Okay, have a good day. Though Khaled is Muslim and grew up in an insular community near Al-Aqsa, he tells us that through his work at Atzala, he's actually become good friends with many ultra-Orthodox Jewish volunteers. We talk about everything. I mean, we talk about the religion, about, about Yahdut, about... Uh, he's learned Jewish history, <laughs> central tenets of Jewish law, <laughs> and is an expert in gematria. <laughs> and yet, he says, it's not always easy being an Arab paramedic serving Jewish communities. Khaled told us that he was once helping in the aftermath of a terrorist attack in Jerusalem. As it happens, all the Hatzalah volunteers that came to help that day were Arab. While they worked to save lives, a crowd of bystanders gathered around. They were angry and riled up. They started chanting in unison. Mavet la'aravim, death to the Arabs. Khaled stops his story for a second as if he's back in that moment. Finally, he starts talking again. If we were all dead, he says, who would have been there to help? Sometimes happen when I finish to help, the people in Hebrew, they told me, I can't believe you are Arab. And what do you say to that? I just, I smile and I, I leave the place. Four p.m. is pickup time at the gun. At first, it's just a trickle. Then, all of a sudden, a flood. Some parents are on their phones, still finishing up Zoom calls and business meetings. Others patiently wait as their kids play a final round of hide-and-go-seek. Laura Kapelyushnik talked to one of them, Scott. My name's Scott. I'm a father of two kids at Imka, and we're now here for the sixth year. The older of his two kids, Nathan, narrates the event. Right now I pick up my sister and then we're going to go home and then babysitter is going to babysit us. I will be, yeah, I'm home and okay. As soon as three-year-old Shira sees the microphone, she buries her face in her dad's shoulder. I'll tell her your name. I think your sister, she's very shy, right? Yeah, because this is her first time being in a podcast. Nathan, on the other hand, is prepared. I listen to a, le- a couple of podcasts. What's your favorite podcast? Uh, Story Pirates. Because it's more like about stories underwater. Like about fish and about like things on land. Obviously, I hope he starts listening to Israel's story too. But, well... I still don't have a telephone with myself, but most of the time we listen in mommy's telephone podcast and sometimes in daddy. This night I'm supposed to pick the podcast and tomorrow she'll pick the podcast. And that, it turns out, was all it took for little Shira to perk up. No, today I'm... In the late afternoon, once the last of the kids has been picked up, things quiet down. The hot sun starts to cool and a pleasant breeze rattles through the palm trees out front. 
I text the Israel Story WhatsApp group and ask all the producers scattered around the building to gather together to trek up to the top of the YMCA bell tower. Should I keep going? <laughs> oh my god, I'm dizzy. We're almost there, we're almost there. The view of Jerusalem is spectacular. Oh, oh actually, wow. <laughs> gorgeous. I've never seen Jerusalem from, from this perspective. Oh, we are so high right now. Marie, you gotta do a selfie. I'm so bad at selfies. But we have to do it with the view. The sun begins to set, painting the sky in purple and pink and orange. As everyone's ooing and eyeing and taking selfies, I sneak out and walk two floors down to meet up with an old friend. I see you have your name on the on the door. Yeah. How do you actually pronounce this word? Carillonaire. Is it a French it's word? a French word. In American, they say carillon. Carillon. And what is a carillonaire? It's the person who plays the carillon. And what is that, you're wondering? Well... Meet Gabi Scheffler. My name is Gabi Scheffler. I'm uh, over 70 years old. You're the second person today who's told me I'm over 70 years old. What is it with people who are over 70 that don't want to say how much over there? I want to tell you how long time I'm in Jerusalem. <laughs> so I'm 74 years old this month. I'm a practicing psychoanalyst and psychologist, clinical psychologist, psychotherapist. And I am also a carillonaire. In other words, Gabi is, as he likes to say, the bellboy. The bellboy. <laughs> His kingdom is a small room, full of what looks like church organs, on the fourth floor of the tower. And it's from here, through a sophisticated system of levers and pulleys, that he controls the wise 36 bronze bells. Three octaves. Three full octaves. And how does a psychoanalyst become a, uh, a bellboy? Actually, the bellboy became a psychoanalyst. <laughs> Fifty years ago, Gabi who was then a university student, saw an ad for bell lessons. He and a few others joined a three-month-long intensive carry-on course. We were eight in that course. Half a century later, he's the only one still chiming. Gabi is tall and not at all hunched over. But much like Quasimodo, he sits, all alone, high above the city, ringing in the angels. So Gabi, as a psychoanalyst, what do you feel when you're in here uh, playing the bells? I think that both improve people's well-being. I think that when people hear the bells, especially in surprise and it starts ringing, it's very nice. It's wow. The heaven is singing. And uh, this sometimes is the experience of someone that gets a insight or a opening or an experience while being in therapy. I thank Gabi and rush downstairs to hear the bells from down below, together with Zev. Zev, what did you think of the bells? They're not my cup of tea. Um, I'm sorry if this is a disappointing answer. Um, it's definitely getting edited out. Bravo! Kolakavod! 
As night engulfs the building, we return to a familiar spot, the sports center. No matter how you look at it, the beating heart of this sermon in stone is its sanctuary of sweat. A new multi-million dollar state-of-the-art 100,000 square foot sports complex built entirely underground. It's where buff U.S. Marines train alongside Muslim women in hijabs and ultra-Orthodox men with tzitziot hanging out of their shorts. All seem equally committed. Try to get here six days a week. I come every day, but it's usually like around four to five times a week. Not less than five. First day. For some, the sports center is basically a social club. You get to know a lot of people, and it's a nice population. A lot of nice friends, a lot of nice people. While others are here to work. I'll cycle for about 50 minutes. 45 minutes. Then I do my weightlifting. Pilates. Try and keep my heart rate about 119. I come, I swim, I leave. That's it. I speak to no one. We, on the other hand, most definitely did not leave. Throughout the day, Donna Harmon and Marie Ruder spent hours in the weight room, the aerobics studios, and Zumba classes at the treadmills next to the stationary bikes, hearing countless stories of Jerusalemites united by sweat. As the day unfolds, the crowd and the energy change too. Come night, there's a sexier atmosphere, a bit of a pickup bar vibe. I'm trying to get more toned legs, I guess. We're trying to grind a little bit because it's like, you know, before the summer and everything like that. Okay, here are Marie and Dana. It's time for heavy breathing and accelerated heart rates. And by that, I mean some juicy love stories. Don't people all the time try and ask you out? Oh yes, uh, just every, you no, every day, every second. That's Mary Zrijat, one of the trainers at the gym. I've been used to it, it's not something in here. She says she's used to it, and that more often than not, it's young men in their 20s that are the ones making the move. They're way too immature, she tells us, as she flips her dark hair back leans over the counter and shows off her shoulder tattoos. So I told him, call me mama. So that's like, yeah, bye. <laughs> Although you'd never guess it, Mary is 44. And she has a clear rule. 40 is as low as she goes. No dates with anyone younger than that. Or at least that was her rule until Corona came along. See, the long pandemic months alone at home taught her that her pickiness might just mean a lot of missed opportunities. I said, oh my God, I'm losing my life. Live your life, Mary, stop doing, say no. So when the gym at the Y finally reopened in March 2021, Mary was willing to bend the rule. Just a bit. From now on, 30 is the new 40. I changed my mind. 30. Okay, we can go out. <laughs> We continue talking about hot gym pickups when a woman approaches us. Her name's Sarah. And, it turns out, she's no stranger to microphones. I'm famous in London, actually. Oh, yeah? yeah. How are you famous in London? I'm a singer. Really? I was a singer, yeah. You know Fiddle on the Roof? So I was a matchmaker girl. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Find me a fine. Catch me a catch. Okay, that's it. That's that what I'm doing. fabulous. 
Are you a matchmaker in real life at all? No, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm still looking myself. So that's really a lot of the reason I'm here, to be honest. I didn't think you were going to touch on that, but yes, that is the reason why I'm here. And with all her matchmaking experience, at least on the stage, Sarah knows exactly what she's looking for. Okay, my criteria is somebody who's a religious guy, who's solid and capable and very kind and a very good person. And I think it will come true. <laughs> Listeners, if anyone is interested and thinks they're worthy, get in touch with Israel's story. And we will connect you onwards. <laughs> <laughs> Our search for spicy love stories takes us to the locker rooms, a place packed with dirty socks and, apparently, also dirty gossip. Case in point, this guy. Nice to meet you. Right off the bat, we run into a man who's happy to chat, but prefers to stay anonymous. You'll soon get why. He's a bit chubby, dark hair, late 40s. 49 and uh, eight months. I'm a grandfather. My wife is from Ramallah. She's Palestinian. I'm married 25 years. But Mr. Anonymous, let's call him Walid, isn't at the gym with his Palestinian wife. No, 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 no. Instead, he's patiently waiting, he says with a smile, for his girlfriend, his Jewish girlfriend. <laughs> Crazy and Maisy. Crazy and Maisy. That's something he says a lot. Maisy and Crazy. Before we can ask him what that actually means, Walid's girlfriend shows up. Let's call her Adi. Wait, so how did you guys meet? I went to some club. Back in 2014, she and her girlfriends went out for drinks, decided they probably shouldn't drive home, and instead called a cab. He's a taxi driver, so this is the story. Since then, we are stuck together. And you're Jewish and you're a Muslim? Yes. Yeah. And, that, and that works out well for you guys? It yeah. is very hard because in my side, a lot of people don't like it at all. And his side don't like it either. At this point, we're not really sure whether Adi knows about Walid's Palestinian wife. Fearing we might spill the beans... We take him aside. And she knows you have another Yes, wife. she's want me. She knows she's want me. She, I told her I am married, I have family. Why? Because I am good dressed looking. good, good looking, clean. All the time I have Walid. In case you didn't get that, Walid says he told Adi that he is married and has a family. But she still wants him because he's good looking, clean, wears aftershave and eau de toilette. We, of course, want to hear more about Walid's complicated, polyamorous, Jewish-Arab love life. But he's much more interested in something else altogether. Something which, he tells us, is a more pressing matter. The toilet. The public toilet. The toilet. What's wrong with the toilet? Water in the lockers, in the toilet inside. It's not okay. The khaki of the children and making me be messy and crazy. He invites us into the locker rooms to see for ourselves. Come, I show you something. Okay, yalla, why not? We awkwardly follow. Are you sure we can come in here? Fully clothed and with our recording here in hand, we pass an Orthodox family dressing their children. You need to open. You need to open it. All the while, Walid furiously points to water puddles on the floor, attempts to flush broken toilets, and finally opens a door to one of the stalls where a man is just getting ready to undress. Opa, sorry. We try to bring the focus back to our after-hours love theme, but the toilets and stinky urinals have clearly killed the sexy vibe. 
And all Walid has to say about it is, well... <laughs> crazy and crazy. Eleven p.m. is closing time at the Y. It is ten fifty-four p.m. And frankly, even though the gym supposedly closes in six minutes, you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't know it by looking around. Still, a lot of people in the jacuzzi. A lot of people working out. No sign of slowing down at all. And then, just like that, the clock strikes 11. The music stops, and the lights switch off. And suddenly, just as it was 15 hours ago, the building is dark and quiet. As I walk towards the main entrance, I think about the people we've met throughout the day. The fragile and resilient collection of Jerusalemites, for whom in many ways... The Y is a second home, a second family. We have former preschool kids that come back with their kids. My, my wife, she was here in the curtain garden three years ago. So we, got, we have a legacy in the, in the family. And now our new child is going to come here too. So. I'm working as a receptionist in the YMCA. I'm the events manager of the Y. I actually was in the kindergarten since I was three years old. And I learned how to swim in the old swimming pool. Which then is I started to be a student in the, in the summer camp. Well, I was a child in Imka. Here I learned to swim. My mom used to work here. My dad works here. 17 years. More than 34 years. We work together at the, in the restaurant here, and now she's my fiancé. We even have one set of parents that were kids together in the same class. It's my second home, actually. Yes. Jamal at the front desk lets me out. Okay, bye, Jamal. Bye, good night. Can I just record you locking the door? Is that okay? So we can have, like, an end to the... Like, a, yeah, of course, like a, a story. Yeah. And as I step out into the chilly Jerusalem night, I feel as if I'm taking something of the magic of the place. Its inclusion and respect, its diversity and pragmatism, and, yes, also its difficulties, back home with me. And in a complicated city like Jerusalem, in complicated times like ours, even that's something. Our team of producers at the YMCA was Zev Levi, Yoshi Field, Skylar Inman, Marie Ruder, Adina Karpuch, Sonia Eppelbaum, Laura Kapilushnik, Dana Harmon, and myself. The Israel Story team also includes Yochai Meital, Nomi Schneider, Ellie Blyer, Tanya Hoyer, Matthew Littman, Sharon Rappaport, and Rotem Tzin. Jeff Umbro and Jesse Adler from the Podglomerate, our marketing team. Zev Levi scored this episode with music from Blue Dot Sessions. Sela Weissblum created the mix. A special thanks to the one and only Sasha Foer, who spent his precious summer vacation in endless editing meetings here in Jerusalem. Thanks also to Aviyayatskan, Shaul Elkana, Esti Rose, Shalom Fadida, Raida Bulil, Netanel Rappaport, Wayne Hoffman, and Esther Werdiger. Thanks, most of all, to my mom, Dorothy Harmon, who's been pitching the idea of an Israel Story YMCA episode for more or less a decade. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Gary Lee Inman, Skylar's dad, who passed away from COVID last month. 
Skylar still remembers him cheering her on in her one and only swim meet at the Houston YMCA nearly 20 years ago. Rest in peace, Gary. I'm Mishi Harman, and we'll be back next time with a brand new Israel Story episode. Till then, Shana Tova Umetuka, Shalom Shalom, and Yalla Bye. Alakh